good day to you. I'm Laura Weber Davis here with Detroit Today, filling in for Stephen Henderson, who's on vacation. He'll be back next week. Thanks so much for joining us. A little bit later in the program, we're going to end the week on a lighter note, uh, especially beginning the year this year. It's been a little bit heavy already for 2018, so we're going to lighten it up to talk about food in the region, the food scene that's exploded, what you've been eating lately that you just can't get away from that restaurant or you just love that slice of pizza and you keep going back there. So we're going to hear from you a little bit later in the program. And we're going to talk to Mark Kurlianchek, the food critic over at the Detroit Free Press, along with Candace Fortman, one of my absolute favorite people to talk about all things cultural here in the region. And she'll be joining us so we can take your calls and hear about your favorite burgers, pizza, and restaurants. That's a bit later in the program. But first, this week, the political world has been abuzz with anticipation over a salacious book depicting life in the first year of a President Trump White House. Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff paints a picture of a chaotic, disorganized grouping of people trying to figure out their high-profile jobs while also managing and containing a commander-in-chief who is consistently referred to as a child behind his back. There are several disturbing scenes of a president perpetually teetering on the brink, the brink of leading a country, of diplomatic capability, of mental fitness. But how much of the book can be taken seriously? While Wolf's book squares with the past year of high-quality reporting that we've seen from news organizations in Washington, the author's credibility has been questioned and have specific encounters that he depicts that don't match with reality. Regardless, the book has thrown Capitol Hill into a tailspin. And here to tell us a little bit about what that fallout looks like is David Shepardson. He's a reporter with Reuters in D.C., and he he covered congressional politics for the Detroit News for many years. David, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks. Good morning, Laura. So tell me a little bit, um, you know, I want to get into the basics of the book, but first let's just start about that reaction. Uh, Of course, in the media... We're we're all sort of fixated on the the enormity of this story and and how it's sort of taken over the past couple of days. But what's been the reaction among uh, lobbyists, lawmakers? What does it look like on the ground there? Well, well I was just up on Capitol Hill yesterday asking uh, senators about other issues and almost every other question that every other reporter was asking was about the book, about the president's mental fitness. Do you have concerns? And you're absolutely right. Uh, in despite a year of incredible revelations and, and stories that would be seemingly in a prior administrations, a story that would captivate Washington for months and months, and we've had you know, literally dozens, if not hundreds of those over the last year, this book has broken through in a way other, others, other things maybe haven't, just because of the, one, the fact that the president's former chief advisor accuses his son of committing treason right. you know, in a meeting with the Russians. It's just, you know, pretty, pretty shocking to consider, you know, that Steve Bannon was such an integral part of, of President Trump's win. And then, as you said, it does at least to a lot of people confirm other reports about the president and how he has approached office. Uh, and, no, I, I think it's hard to see a lot getting done in the in the near term. As you know, just this week, the Democrats picked up another, uh, Doug Jones was sworn in as the newest senator from Alabama, which yeah. shrunk the Republicans' lead in the Senate to 51 to 49, making it very difficult, or the best of circumstances, to get a lot done. So, no, I think this is going to dominate the conversation. And the real question is how much more will the Republicans be able to get done this year besides confirming more 
more judges and other nominees in the Senate. Well, at the, on the other hand, I would imagine that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is pretty gleeful these past couple of days, not because the book helps him from an agenda standpoint, but because it sort of puts to bed uh, a long-standing feud um, now between himself and Steve Bannon, who's at the center of this, and people just seem to be quickly fleeing from Steve Bannon, having been clearly the major source for this book. Oh, no, it, it's, it's absolutely remarkable, because if you think about it, just a few months ago, you know, before Roy Moore um, lost uh, the Alabama Senate race, you know, Steve Bannon was seen as this, you know, savant in the Republican Party and was out actively recruiting all of these Republican candidates to take on what he called the establishment uh, candidates, you know, and one of the top priorities, according to Steve Bannon, was getting rid of Mitch McConnell as the majority leader. and Right, and dismantling the Republican Party first before uh, taking uh, on Democrats. Absolutely, and then basically recasting the party as a anti-free trade, more populist party. And it's, you know, it's, it's remarkable that in this short period you have seen all these uh, individuals flee, including a lot of the candidates that Steve Bannon had recruited because he has been so, well, these these attacks on President Trump are so harsh. And, you know, these anti-establishment candidates, a lot of their goal is to uh, appeal to the Trump-based voters. And given these comments, you know, the, the establishment candidates have really put these other candidates on the defensive because now they're saying either you denounce Steve Bannon or, you know, or face the wrath of voters. And, and, and the other interesting thing is just yesterday, one of Steve Bannon's primary uh, financial backers, uh, the Mercer family, mm-hmm. uh, which is also behind Breitbart, the conservative website, have also stepped away from Steve Bannon. There is a question whether Steve Bannon will be forced out from, from Breitbart, where he's the chairman. As So, no, it, it, it does show, despite all of the the you know, critics, the, the the establishment, Republicans, Democrats, there's a reason Mitch McConnell's been around for so long, because he knows how Washington operates. Right. And um, you know, as a lot of Republicans say, and Democrats too, it's you know not, not a good bet to bet against uh, Mitch McConnell, typically. It seems to me like Steve Bannon all along has understand, uh, has understood the the risks that he was taking and in some ways had maybe a, a longer term strategy for his vision and that this would play into whatever vision he had. I mean, these are not things that he was denying, he said. Uh, the author, Michael Wolf, says he has all this stuff on tape, specifically the conversations that Steve Bannon was having. Um, it just seems to me like he has a very calculated career so far, even if he wasn't anticipating he would ever get to the White House that these are sort of maneuvers he understands will have a certain dramatic fallout, but that it will be to his long-term benefit. Is that is that an inaccurate assessment of this man? No, but I don't. I think one question is, and you hear from reporters who know the author Michael Wolf, is that, and some of his prior writings, is it, there certainly may be some inaccuracies, and, and there are ways to point out some some questionable material. But you're certainly right that Steve Bannon was a a source. Uh, for a lot of us. But remember how the book got started, that Michael Wolff had written something that President Trump had liked, the cover story in the magazine, and he was invited by Steve Bannon to essentially wander around the White House. And in the early days of the administration, because basically everyone in the Trump campaign did not expect they were going to win, they had not done 
hardly anything in the transition. So when January 20th arrived, it was a, it was a very disorganized place, impossible to get a hold of people. People didn't have email addresses for quite a while. And so Michael Wolf was allowed to just kind of wander around the West Wing, and there, there wasn't a lot of organization. And you, some of the transition teams never even bothered to visit the agencies before, right. before January 20th. So certainly, he, you know, the fact he was able to gather a lot of material, which would typically not happen in, a, in, a, in an early administration, I just don't think we, we don't know for certain how much of this Steve Bannon said intentionally or how much was, you know, he thought off the record or on background or whatever it was. So, but, but clearly, you know, Steve Bannon was taking some pretty big risks by saying, mm-hmm. saying some of these things. And, um, and he's also not jumping up and down to say, I didn't say that. I mean, it's okay. yesterday there was a little bit of news that came out that perhaps he was considering making a statement against the book. But then when the president turned against him, he decided not to come out and say, I didn't say those things. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, because if you think about the people in those, those type of positions in prior administrations, like David Axelrod for Barack Obama or Karl Rove for George Bush, I mean, these are people who are typically very loyal because the, you know, I mean, the whole flagstone of their career, they, they got somebody elected president that people didn't think was going to win. And to see this kind of kind of falling out, uh, is is just it's just really remarkable, and it's just it's hard to even, despite all the news going on here all the time, it's hard to to fathom how much news has already happened this week and, and how much we've forgotten because so much else has happened. Right, and we're only a few days into 2018. Uh, <laughs> this is Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm speaking with David Shepherdson. He covers uh, business and politics in D.C. He used to cover right. the, for the Detroit News, but also is now working for Reuters. We also want to hear from you. Have you read excerpts of this book, Fire and Fury? Do you plan to read the book uh, now that it's supposed to come out today? Um, how much value do you place on what you've heard or read when you're making a judgment about President Donald Trump's tenure? 313-577-1019 is the phone number to weigh in. 313-577-1019. Brian on Facebook says, seems it mostly confirms what we have already known. And, and David, I want to get back to that question about the previous reporting we've seen, especially the New York Times has released a couple of big profiles over the past year that square with a lot of the larger points that are being made in Fire and Fury. But I wanted to talk about the credibility aspect between Michael Wolff and the reporting that uh, Maggie has done over at New York Times or Glenn Thrush has done over there. Um, I'm just curious about uh, the credibility piece here, because even if a lot of this is largely true, um, we already have a couple pieces that have been pulled apart that's, that clearly don't square with facts. And uh, I'm just curious if that affects the long-term um, sort of place that this takes. Unlike Game Change that came out, this book, this big book that came out after John McCain lost to President Obama, um, maybe this wouldn't really hold that same level of respect over the long term. I, I, I think you're the... the Facebook posting you just referenced really <clears throat> encapsulates what's going on here. I, I agree. This book, we can't underestimate. I think we've, we're probably not giving New York Times and Washington Post and a lot of these really well-done, deeply reported profiles of President Trump in office enough credit because there have been so many of them, and they've gone uh, and then they've, they've happened over the last year. And there's, so, there's such a, a glut of information. A lot of this material has been reported, maybe not to the level of detail, not with as much salacious 
aspects by, by other outlets. So, but in, in some ways, because what's happened is in Washington is, is you hear this whole post facts. You know, people can tell their own facts, as um, Kellyanne Conway said. In some ways, you know, if you both sides, and especially Republicans, said, "Hey, you know, we're just going to ignore you know Trump. We're going to ignore facts that I don't agree with and just deny it." Well, maybe now on the other side, people are going to, even if there are aspects of this book that are not true, it will just confirm what people want to believe, even if it's not true. So I don't. I mean, I think we're in an era now where where both sides you know, are so locked into their positions that they're right. not really interested in in trying to discern what's true or not true. And, and they're simply going to either say, oh, this, if you're the Republicans or Donald Trump supporters, you're going to say this is just another example of the liberal media trying to tear down, you know, the president. And if you're, uh, uh, you know, someone who doesn't like the president or doesn't like what's happened, you say, oh, this just confirms what I believe, that he's unqualified and, you know, described as a child, as you reference in the book. Right. Well, you know, even if Michael Wolff, the author, wasn't playing necessarily fast and loose with the facts, but maybe allowing himself to sort of get into this new journalism style, mm-hmm. not new journalism as in right, right now, but this style of maybe gonzo journalism, I was there. And so it's about the experience that I have sort of absorbed as a sponge. And now I'm going to put it down as true to the experience, whether or not we are being very specific with the facts every single sentence, but rather conveying the general sense of what was going on, and that's what's factual. But that seems to me that that, that that angle sort of plays into what Donald Trump has been saying now for months and months on end, that the media is out to get him, that, right, that this is a liberal media attack, as you've said, and that that there are, there isn't credibility among genuine journalists trying to really... Uh, disseminate facts and information no it's a very look part of the white house strategy has been because there's been so much you know so much bad news and and the white house has taken under donald trump has taken a lot of you know, positions or acted in ways that prior administrations would never have done and in response there's been a very aggressive effort to delegitimize the media by the president and and the white house and that said in terms of the book, you know, a lot of this book, as he said, was just, you know, you know, walk wandering around the West Wing, listening to people. You know, he may very well have reported accurately what other people said, but because a lot of this was essentially, you know, gossipy things that even White House aides might not know definitively, you do have to raise questions. I mean, one of the examples in the book is he, the president, you know, allegedly told the Secret Service and the housekeeping staff, you know, not to pick up his clothes on the floor. Or the, you know, he wanted to leave them there. And he wanted to lock in his room, and the Secret Service didn't want that. And so there are not many people that would know that unless the president was telling people within the West Wing about what, um, you know, what he wanted the, the, the housekeeping or Secret Service to do. So, to do, right. you know, we're really left with the end of the White House says he, the author of the book, only had a very short conversation with the President Trump, and he hasn't denied that in the last, you know, after taking office. So, no, I do think, especially among the more salacious details, you have to be very skeptical because unless there's more evidence appears or the author releases some more factual basis. But I think when when combined with the prior reporting by mainstream outlets about the presidency, it does it does at least reinforce some of the views about how about how the White House 
has operated, and certainly it's, it was very chaotic early on. Right. And this, you know, and, and look, the, the fact that the president keeps tweeting about, you know, I happen to be working on January 1st at 7 in the morning. The president tweeted out that he was about to make a major shift in policy toward Pakistan. Right. And with withhold aid, and that prompted emergency meetings in Pakistan and so on and so I mean, certainly he is doing things that no prior president would do, you know, announcing major policy shifts at 7 in the morning via Twitter on, on January 1st. But, right. you know, that, that's, you could argue that's part of his strategy, which is that because there's a constant stream of, of, of news or chaos, if you will, that none of these stories really, you know, last that long. And that will be on by next week. There'll be something even more salacious. There'll be more, more that will capture people's attention. And will this book really even be talked about in another week or month or, or two? It's hard to say with the news cycle turning over as fast as it is. David Shepardson, before I let you go, I ju- I'm just curious if there's something that really stood out to you, an anecdote that stood out to you, that we should pay more attention to maybe in our future reporting, something that hadn't come out before? Well, maybe there was an anecdote that some nights, this dovetail with something that the New York Times said that some nights the president goes up to the residence, gets in his pajamas and gets in bed at 6.30 and starts watching cable news. And certainly, you know, there's been a lot of reporting that says he consumes a huge amount of television and a lot of what he tweets is in direct response to television and I, I de- and, and Fox and Friends, but not not exclusively that. And I think no, it does reinforce how much the, this White House is focused on what's on on television and and how the what the president is interested in uh, and tweets out is also a function of what's on television. So no, it's it's definitely a president unlike George Bush or Barack Obama who professed to avoid television, ignore ignore all of it. Uh, you know, the president's very, this president's very different and uh, very much, you know, somebody who came from TV, a reality TV star, and, um, and a year of the presidency, that, that, that aspect um, of television at the center hasn't changed. It's like the most intense feedback loop in modern history. <laughs> well, then how about yesterday with the, yesterday at the briefing, instead of the president coming down to talk to reporters, the press secretary stood there and piped in a video a recorded message, right? Yeah. What strange and new times we're living in, David Shepardson. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Thanks, Laura. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. David Shepardson is a reporter with Reuters in D.C. He also covered congressional politics for the Detroit News for many years, and we always are happy to have him on the program. Coming up next, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We want to hear about your 2018, what makes it exciting on the food front. We're going to have Mark Curlianchek from the Free Press here and Candace Fortman from WDET. It's coming up next. 